Welcome to Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down Among the Lotus Eaters, the season two fourth episode of Star Trek Strange New World. We'll conclude our podcast with the latest Star Trek news. Before we begin, please remember our analysis contains spoilers. So if you haven't yet watched this episode, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis for Among the Lotus Eaters. Sure. In Pike's quarters, Captain Spatel and Pike prepare to spend a romantic evening together. Spatel gives Pike a gift of an Opelian Mariner's keystone to be worn around his neck. According to the legend, ancient Opelian captains used the keystone to guide them home. Battelle receives news she had been passed over for a promotion to Commodore. Since Pike thinks it may have had something to do with her association with him regarding Una's trial, he suggests they put the brakes on their relationship so not to interfere with her career. Understandably, the timing and substance of his proposition upsets her. Battelle leaves to return to her ship. Pike receives orders to return to the planet Rigel 7. When Starfleet receives evidence, the pre-warp civilization may have been culturally contaminated five years earlier during an unsuccessful mission led by Pike. Three crew members were left behind on the planet who were presumed to be dead. A landing party composed of Pike and Benga and Laan arrived dressed in the fashion of the native people known as the Kalar. The trio leave behind their tech in the shuttle so not to risk further contamination. It is not long before they are captured by Kalar soldiers carrying Starfleet weapons. Three are taken to a fortress where Pike is surprised to learn his former personal yeoman, Zach. Nonien had somehow survived the previous mission. Using the superior Starfleet technology, Zack had established himself as leader of the Kalar. Embittered by having been left behind, he showed no mercy to the landing crew. He ordered them to be taken to endure hard labor breaking rocks with other Kalar, known as the Field Kalar. All three of the landing party feel the effects of the radiation from an asteroid that had impacted the planet thousands of years ago. The radiation causes a ringing in their ears, followed by an inability to remember who they are as well as their past. The only connection to their true identities is through the emotional ties they have to other people. The trio is befriended by Luke, an older man who has passively accepted his fate as a field Kalar. He tells them he would rather not know his past because he does not want to experience the pain that may come from those memories. Luke tells the trio the guards and those who live in the castle do not experience the condition of forgetting due to a casket kept in the fortress. Pike and Benga and La'an do not remember why they are connected to each other but somehow feel an attachment. They decide to overpower the guards who are armed with primitive yet lethal weapons. 
The trio is successful, but in the process, La'an is seriously wounded. Back on the Enterprise, the crew has become incapacitated by the same radiation, unable to recall who they are or their purpose. Only Spock and Lieutenant Ortega's remained on the bridge. The ship became endangered since no one was taking charge to pilot, the, pilot it through the asteroid field. Ortegas became so overwhelmed by confusion that she sought refuge in her own quarters. Alone in her room, Ortegas finds the means to rebuild her confidence by asking the computer for her name and purpose, which was to fly the ship. By repeating the information, she was able to assure herself that she could save the ship. She returns to the bridge and uses her skills to take the ship and crew out of trouble. At the fortress, Pike and Mbenga subdue more guards and retake possession of several Starfleet weapons. While the doctor remains outside to deter anyone from interfering with their mission, the captain enters the castle, finds Zack, and knocks him about to get him to divulge where he has hidden the casket, Luke said, would protect them from forgetting. However, Zack confesses that the casket doesn't exist. Instead, the castle and the guards' helmets have properties that shield them from the conditions of the radiation. The landing party returns to the Enterprise where La'an receives medical attention. Zack is turned over to Starfleet authorities. The radioactive asteroid is removed from the surface of Rigel 7 to spare the Kalar from the effects of the radiation. Pike apologizes to Battelle, and they happily resume their relationship. Yes, isn't that sweet? <laughs> now let's move on to the credits. Among the Lotus Eaters was written by Kristen Baer and Davey Perez and directed by Eduardo Sanchez. Kristen Baer was a co-creator for Star Trek Picard, but we won't hold that against her, where she served as writer and supervising producer for seasons one and a co-executive producer for season two. She has also written and produced Star Trek Discovery and is currently a co-executive producer on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. She is the New York Times best-selling author of the last 10 Star Trek Voyager novels, including 2020's To Lose the Earth, for which she was the narrator for the audiobook edition. Davy Perez was born on Halloween night in East Los Angeles to a large Mexican-American family. Although a high school dropout, Davy earned his GED and began attending the Playhouse West Repertory School with a focus on acting. In 2013, Davey was selected for a NALIP HBO Latino Writer Fellowship. The following year, he was a participant in the 2014 Disney ABC Writing Program. Concerning his writing credits, Perez is best known for his work on Supernatural, where he wrote or served as story editor for 52 episodes. Among the Lotus Eaters is Perez's third writing credit for Strange New Worlds. He also wrote two season one episodes, Memento Mori 
and all those who wander. Yeah, both of those are good too. They're really good. Yeah. yeah. Director Eduardo Sanchez is best known for the 1999 cult film The Blair Witch Project. According to IMDb, it is the most spoof film of all times. Sanchez was born in Cuba in 1968. He has many directing credits including multiple episodes for television series going back from from Dusk Till Dawn, Lucifer, Supernatural, and Queen of the South. Among the Lotus Eaters is his first Star Trek directing credit. All right. Now let's turn to the analysis. In Among the Lotus Eaters, Pike returns to Rigel 7, a planet that was the scene of a tragic mission which has haunted him ever since. But this time, memories won't be the problem. He and his landing party slowly find themselves forgetting everything, including who they are and why they are there. The theme for Among the Lotus Eaters is connection. Connections to others and to our past help us maintain our place in the world. They help to ground us in our core beliefs, those things that matter. Also, connections provide us with a sense of purpose and identity. Does that mean that when we lose important connections where we can't remember who we are, that we forget those core principles? In Among the Lotus Eaters, the answer is not necessarily so. So here are our first impressions. Among the Lotus Eaters is a combination of several familiar tropes from across the Star Trek franchise. The story incorporates the plot where the crew is suffering from amnesia and must figure out how to reclaim their memories with the tale of a Starfleet member who has contaminated a pre-warp culture and a plot where a mysterious element on or around the planet is making the crew act funny. It's a story very much in the tradition of the original series. However, there are two modern twists that make it unique. The first is the statement it makes on the importance of knowing one's meaning and purpose. The second is on the viability of relationships with members of a cause committed to duty. We'll explore both of these in more depth in a minute. The title is a reference to one of the events in Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. On their journey home, Odysseus and his men arrive at a small island after having been lost at sea for several days in a turbulent storm. He sends out scouts while the rest of his crew stops to rest. Soon, the scouts encounter the island's inhabitants, the Lotus Eaters. The locals are friendly and offer lotus plants to the scouts, who gratefully eat the delicious uh, plants. The more they eat the more they begin to lose their memories and all interest in returning home. Odysseus goes in search of his men and finds them no longer aware of who they are or interested in returning home. They have forgotten their obligation to the rest of the crew and the quest to get home. Odysseus forces them back onto their boats and immediately leaves the island before a desire to stay brings his entire journey to a halt. In this part of the poem, Homer is connecting the importance of purpose and drive to identity 
and responsibility. In both the Odyssey and this episode, memories are the glue. It is those connections that ground us in our purpose and principles. It reminds us of who we are and to what we are committed. Without one, a person can easily lose the other. Now let's talk a little bit about purpose and meaning. Among the Lotus Eaters is a follow-up to, to events that were first introduced to us in The Cage, the original pilot for Star Trek. In that story, the Enterprise is en route to the nearest star base, carrying the wounded from the failed first contact encounter with the Kalar on Rigel 7. In a scene with the previous chief medical officer, Dr. Boyce, Pike is lamenting the death of three crew members on that mission. The dead include his yeoman, Zack. His melancholy is interrupted when the ship receives a distress call from Talos IV. Rigel 7 is an open wound for Pike, the outcome of which almost led to him quitting Starfleet. The loss of Zack, the two others, as well as the seven injured Enterprise crew members is a failure that Pike believes could have been avoided. This new mission to, to the Rigel system gives him the opportunity to fix a fatal mistake and possibly honor their sacrifice. But this time, Pike is taking no chances. Intent on not making the same mistake twice, he implements several changes to the protocol used on this mission. The away team is comprised of Lon, Dr. Mbanga, and himself, crew members who possess expertise in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The team is dressed in clothing designed to resemble that of the Kalar so that it might blend in better as opposed to just wearing their Starfleet uniforms. Finally, no tech is being brought along on this mission that doesn't currently exist on Kalar, which means they won't have phasers, tricorders, or communicators to rely on. None of that matters when they are abducted immediately by K the Kalar soldiers carrying Starfleet phaser rifles. The irony wasn't lost on us when it was discovered that Zack, the dead Enterprise crew member Pike mourned, was not only alive but ruling over this exploitative regime. Zack is someone Starfleet invested in with training and opportunities. It was believed that he exhibited the best that the Federation had to offer. He was a member of the crew for the flagship of Starfleet, but Zack didn't lose his purpose when he lost his memories. He severed his connection to the man he once was after he regained them and decided his best course of action was to become a medieval despot. Pike and the others lost their drive in much the same way as Odysseus' men did when they couldn't remember who they were. When they encountered the field Kalar known as Luke, Pike, Mbenga, and Laon had no knowledge of him, but that did not stop them from following Luke to the labor site where the color of their garments signaled what work they were assigned to do. Compliance is their first gift to Kalar. But what is it that brings them back to their core beliefs? For Mbanga, he remembers himself when someone that's La'an needs medical assistance. 
He remembers that he is a healer and quickly needs more than his simple knowledge to save her life. For Pike, it's when the attack on La'an generates a protective attitude towards her and Mbanga, even though he doesn't remember why he feels close to them. Pike takes on the quest to get in the castle and open the memory coffin where Luke says their memories are captured. And the interesting thing about this is that the Kalar have taken advantage of the memory loss to create a two-tiered society with a caste system for those at the lower tier. The field Kalar are comprised of those who can't make explicit memories. They divide into labor groups, identified by the color of their clothing. The castle Kalar are led by King Zacharias, Zach. They wear protective helmets and use their full memories to govern, serve in the military, and receive most of the benefits of the field Kalar's labor. All of the ideals of egalitarianism Zach learned growing up in the Federation and that were reinforced by Starfleet Code of Conduct was easily abandoned when he thought his commanding officer left him behind. His feelings got hurt and he turned his back on everything he ever believed. Zach's purpose went from service to selfish greed when he became King Zacharias. We don't know if this oppressive two-tiered system existed prior to the Enterprise's first mission to Rigel 7, but Zack is another example of a member of the Federation raised in what Palea called a socialist no-money utopia that took advantage of a leadership vacuum to become a ruler in a repressive totalitarian government. I find that interesting. Fascinating, one wet might even say. Okay. All right, so now let's turn to relationships. Among the Lotus Eaters offers us an opportunity to explore the value of human connections through what it says about relationships. Main characters in Star Trek have usually taken the position that there isn't room in their lives to serve in Starfleet and maintain romantic relationships. For Kirk, it was just it was justification for his unwillingness to commit to anything other than his own career. For Picard, who was also skittish when it came to a sustained, ongoing relationship, his excuses came down to status or decorum. He couldn't fall in love with a subordinate crew member and give them orders, putting that same person in harm's way. He also was concerned about how it would look. Picard was more prone to occasionally return to a past lover, see Beverly Crusher. (laughs) However, even though the repeat performances may have produced a child, Picard could never commit to anything lasting. Sisko was introduced to us as a grieving widower, raising his son named Jake, alone at the frontier of known space. For most of the series, his most important relationship was with his son. It wasn't until the later seasons that he courted, fell in love, and finally married Cassidy Yates, only to leave her to go and be with the prophets. Leave her with child. Leave her pregnant. Pregnant with child. That's right. Yes. Let's not forget that. (laughs) At the start of Voyager, Janeway was engaged to be married, but when they were presumed dead by Starfleet, 
her fiance moved on and married a co-worker four years after the ship disappeared. Janeway, too, found it difficult balancing the human need for intimacy and a, the desire to satisfy relationships with the responsibility of leadership. She had a similar reasons for Picard, as Picard did, but Janeway had the added wrinkle of being a woman in charge of bringing a crew back alive. She was a leader during a moment of crisis. Any prospective partner would have had to have been a subordinate un naturally, but although whereas a man may have been able to get away with something like that, a woman in the th authority never could. Right. So Archer and Burnham are unique among the captains for very different reasons. Archer was captain of the first human exploration outside of the solar system. The United Earth Fleet was far more like any branch of the modern armed forces than Starfleet became. Looking for a date among the crew really wasn't plausible considering the situation. Michael Burnham, however, developed a relationship with Cleveland Booker when she was stranded alone in the 32nd century. Having Book was critical to her ability to assimilate. He was her trusted companion before discovery followed her to the future. Likewise, Michael was important to Book as well. When he found the strength to connect with his family, she was there by his side. And unfortunately, when Book had to begin processing the loss of his entire civilization, it was Michael who was there to hold his hand and grieve along with him. They were each other's confidant and rock. Unfortunately, problems didn't arise until Book aligned himself with a self-centered megalomaniacal scientist. Targa was hell-bent on getting what he wanted or destroying all of existence. For his part in the crisis, Book is sent off to serve out a sentence. So it appears their relationship is on some form of a pause for now. This brings us back to Pike. At the top of the episode, we witness how difficult it is for two commanding officers to spend 30 minutes sharing a meal without constantly being interrupted with a request or a communique uh, from a superior officer. When Battelle informs Pike that she was passed over for promotion in retaliation for losing Una's court-martial case, Pike blames himself. He prematurely breaks off their relationship, blaming her association with him as the cause. Although Pike almost immediately regrets it, Battelle's abrupt exit allows him to justify a breakup on the terms he had created for himself. But he can't drop it. This becomes evident after he loses his memories. Although he doesn't know what the Opelian Mariner's medallion is, Pike does remember that it was a gift from someone important to him. The medallion helps him to focus on the importance of the one who gave it to him. Despite not having a mental image of Battelle or knowing her name, Pike is able to use the importance of the relationship as his North Star. It brings him home to what matters. So here are our final thoughts. 
Among the Lotus Eaters wasn't as strong as episode two from this season, but it was a welcome change from last week's time travel story with its contrived and convenient plot. This time, we went back to a classic Trek location and tale, but there was more story to tell and new things to unearth. The fate of Yeoman Zack, the mystery of the memory loss, and how losing explicit knowledge created an opportunity for some people to find out who they were and what they truly valued. In addition to the immediate adventure, the episode gave both Pike and Ortegas opportunities to rediscover who they are and what matters most in their lives. But there are a few outstanding questions. Yes, there are. Does Starfleet not routinely track what they bring along on landing parties <laughs> to pre-warp planets? Should those crates of weapons have been recovered or either destroyed? There didn't seem to be much importance placed on that era. Yeah, I mean, when you walk up and you find a bunch of pre-warp uh, soldiers and they got phaser rifles, you know where they came from. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, all of them have the Starfleet insignia right there on them. That's right. You know, and I'm just saying, could they have, like, destroyed them or something? Could they have had, a like, a, a time that when they were getting away, they could have set some um, bomb off that would have gotten rid of them well we never seen that i'm just saying <laughs> you know we know what else we never seen we never seen a crate of phaser rifles either <laughs> okay all right um secondly for the second time this season mbanga shared a nonverbal gesture with ahan that means something to the two of them but it's opaque to anyone else the doctor drew his index finger under his left eye this is not the first time He's done this in Broken Circle, the very first episode of the season. When Mbenga and the others arrived at Kajitar 4, he made the same gesture under his left eye to signal to La'an that they were there to back her up. In Among the Lotus Eaters, he did it when after he had saved her life. This time, she repeated the gesture back to him. Now, this is an important clue to something about Mbenga that we can only anticipate coming up in one of the remaining episodes this season. Okay, I want to say a little bit about Pike's earache. Okay. Yeah, what about that earache? So early in the episode, Pike begins to hear the ringing, then loses track of time, finding himself and the others trapped in a cage. The only problem is the symptoms began... When they were inside the castle. Yeah, inside the castle. Yeah, and the castle was supposed to be a safe space. That was um, an issue of the continuity director. Yeah, the continuity director didn't catch that. Right, right. Because that shouldn't have been in the episode. No. Yeah. And then last but not least, the Universal Translator. We are told that even though they didn't have any other tech, the landing party was able to talk to the locals using a subdermal universal translator. Yeah. 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 T talk to us about that universal <laughs> translator because that's one of your favorite Star Trek well, te technologies. You know what? I definitely have an issue with universal translator. I mean, it's obviously a convention that Star Trek uses because they don't want to deal with language, but there is like no way the universal translator uh, on their last mission, they were there for four hours. Yeah. 
that enough information would have been collected so that about you, the syntax yeah. and the, the dialect and all the other things that they would need to know about Kalar language or even meaning or meaning, meaning exactly right. right for them to know about Kalar language for the universal translator is a word uh, and and work so effortlessly effortlessly that, yeah, yes that, that nobody would could tell at first now they, they they said they knew when they came. I mean, they didn't fool them very long anyways. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. you know, so maybe it was their accent. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but, but I do. I do have an issue with uh, the use of universal translators uh, that they work all the time. When we know, even in the movies, right. they didn't work well. You know, like, for example... In uh, undiscovered country, mm-hmm. they actually had to get out books, right, uh, to figure out how to speak Klingon, right? You know, right. so. Well, if you think about it, think about it as if it's a movie. Think about it as a Japanese movie with English with um, with English uh, dubbing, and you've got the actors' mouths moving, right. speaking that Japanese, even though the English is what you're hearing. Yeah. So imagine the universal translator working in the exact same way. People are talking to you, but what you're hearing you comprehend, but their mouths are making completely different Yeah, their mouths, their mouths do not fit the words, the that words you're they're hearing. saying yeah, yeah, that you're hearing. So, yeah. I mean, that's part of the problem of the universal translator. But look, we know it's a t- TV show. It's a TV show. It's a convention. Let's move on to bits and pieces. Yes. So we're going to call this the Caged Menagerie Edition. Oh, clever, isn't it? <laughs> Caged Menagerie. Okay. I get the pun. Yeah, because you wrote it. Yeah, well. Okay. The, the episode was shot in the last weeks of March 2022 and used the Mount Community Center in Peterborough, Ontario, for the interior of the Rigel 7 Castle. The episode also included both a captain's personal log, stardate 1630-1, and a helmsman's personal log, stardate 1632-2, from Otegas. The Starfleet Delta seen on the surface of Rigel 7 is based upon the design introduced on Discovery in Season 1. This tracks for a planetary visit from five years prior to this episode. Mm. Pike reminds Ortegos that he was also a test pilot, which was first revealed to us when he showed his Starfleet record on Discovery episode Light and Shadows. The mentions of Spock's injuries is consistent with the events in the cage where Spock in fact, still had a limp and some bandaging on him from the Enterprise's first visit to Rigel 7. Captain Battelle's ship, the USS Cayuga, was seen once before, very briefly, at the end of Star- Strange New Worlds Season 1 finale. Pike served Battelle's Chateau Picard wine likely the 22-21 vintage Bordeaux. I wonder if she found it pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> Battelle found the Opelian Mariner's Medal on a farming colony of Galt, where Worf would later grow up with after his adopted parents, the Rojenkos, 
rescued him from the Kittimer attack. Okay, so here's a fact about Ortega's. Yep. Among the decorations in Ortega's quarters is a model of the USS Enterprise and one of a Walker-class ship like the USS Shenzhou. Both are obviously Eagle Moss models. Ortega's fact number two, Ortega's file reveals that she was born in Perinquila, Colombia on May 20th, 2233. Okay, Baran, Barranquilla. Barranquilla. Ortega's fact number two Ortega's file reveals she was born in Barranquilla, Colombia on May 20th, 2233. And here's our another fact about Ortega's. Ortega's quarters are as big as Fox or Una's. The officers' quarters are massive with high-end finishes on this enterprise. Yeah, I mean, you got little, you got fireplaces. Yeah. You got, you know, you got expert chef quarters. I mean, that's pretty good digs. Oh, yeah. I don't know what Kirk did to get them runny little (laughs) cubby holes that they had on the Enterprise. But they was treating him pretty bad. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to Star Trek news. The Ready Room is our first bit of news. In the latest installment, host Will Wheaton held an interview with actor Anson Mount. Featurettes included a look at the prop making for the second season of Strange New Worlds, as well as a video on recreating Rigel 7. The Ready Room concluded with a preview of the next week's episode of Strange New Worlds entitled Charades. And now for some Comic-Con news. According to TrekMovie.com, San Diego's Comic-Con 2023 kicks off in less than two weeks. And there is some interest to Star Trek fans. Oh, really? Yeah. So the full Saturday schedule for SDCC 2023 was released yesterday, and it includes a panel to be held on Saturday, July 22nd at 1.30 p.m. to 3 p.m. in Hall H. The legendary Hall H. Right. And here is the official description. The fan-favorite Star Trek Universe panel returns to Comic-Con featuring exclusive content from Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Lower Decks, and Star Trek Strange New Worlds. There are no details yet on who Paramount is bringing to San Diego. Obviously, this is due to the possibility that SEG After Actors Union could be on the picket line with the writers as negotiations don't conclude with a contract. If everything goes well, it should be a mix of cast and creators from the three shows. The exclusive content could be the reveal of key art and or trailers. The brief description in the schedule makes no mention of the previously announced Starfleet Academy series or Section 31 streaming movie But these panels often include surprise reveals and announcements. I think those two are probably impacted by the writer's strike as well. Oh, sure. Which is probably why they they may not have anything to talk about. That's right. There are 
there's also another official panel that might be of interest to Star Trek fans. 2023 is the 50th anniversary of the premiere of Star Trek The Animated Series. It appears that Paramount is getting ready to celebrate the anniversary of that show and more animated Star Trek. The official convention schedule includes a panel entitled Official 50th Star Trek Animated Celebration at 10 a.m. Friday, July 21st in room 225ABC. Here's the description. The Star Trek brand team first look at Star Trek the Animated Celebration, a campaign celebrating all things animation throughout the franchise. Does that include Prodigy? I would like to believe that included Prodigy. <laughs> Explore the latest in publishing, gaming, and beyond with one-of-a-kind giveaways, exclusive sneak peeks, and special panelists. We'll be sure to report on any Star Trek items of interest coming out of this year's Comic-Con as they, as they are become available. Well, now for some Star Trek Prodigy news. Yeah. And they've been nominated for a TCA award. According to TrekMovie.com, just one week after Paramount Plus announced they were removing a number of shows, including Prodigy, as part of a cost reducing purge ahead of the integration with Showtime. The animated Star Trek show is being honored by the Television Critics Association. The 39th annual TCA Awards were announced yesterday and Star Trek Prodigy was nominated for Outstanding Achievement in Family Programming, a new category for 2023 which recognizes shows created for youth from seven-year-olds and up. Prodigy is going up against American-born Chinese, High School Musical, The Musical, The Series, Jane Love, Victor, Marvel's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, Miss Marvel, Never Have I Ever, and The Mysterious Benedict Society. Mm. That's some interesting competition. I still would root for Prodigy. Yes. Since launching in 1985, this is the first time an active Star Trek show has been nominated for a TCA award, according to Memory Alpha. Star Trek, the original series, won the TCA Heritage Award in 2020. This isn't the first high-profile accolade for the show, as you may know. Last year, the first season of Prodigy was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Animated Series. The series won an Emmy for production design as well. Winners for the TCA Awards will be announced Monday, August 7th. Now for our next item, there's a new publisher for Nana's Visitor's book. Two years ago, Nana Visitor, best known for her role as Kira Nerys, in Deep Space Nine, announced she was working on a book on women in Star Trek. However, its publication had been delayed by several challenges, including the demise of her publisher. However, according to Daily Star Trek News, the book is back on track with a new publisher, Inside Editions. The book is entitled Star Trek Open a Channel, A Woman's Trek. According to the book's distributor, Simon & Schuster, Visitor explores how the series has portrayed and influenced women 
Interviews with the stars, writers, producers, and celebrity fans reveal the struggles and triumphs of women both behind and in front of the camera throughout the 60-year history of Star Trek and how they have mirrored the experiences of women everywhere. Visitors' interviews are also being recorded by 455 Films for a potential documentary. The book is due out March 12, 2024, and it's now available for pre-order via Amazon or wherever you buy your books. So are we getting a... Are we pre-ordering it? Well, I tell you what, Gary, I looked it up, and that book is $48. So I'm hoping the price goes down a little bit. So are we pre-ordering the book? Not yet. Okay, I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask. All right. That was the question I asked. Okay. Okay, next up, Star Trek broadcasting news for our Canadian viewers. On the same day as Star Trek shows have appeared on Paramount Plus in the U.S., they have been broadcast on CTV Sci-Fi Channel and also became available on Bell Media's Crave streaming service the very next day. Crave also maintained a library of new Star Trek shows along with the legacy shows. However, according to TrekMovie.com, that will be coming to an end later on this summer. Crave has confirmed that it will phase out Star Trek content as of August 1st, including the legacy shows. In fact, subscribers can already see warnings within Crave about the different shows leaving between July 24th and July 31st. The one exception is that Strange New Worlds will be available to stream on Crave until the fall. It isn't known where, where Canadians will be able to go to stream Star Trek content after they exit Crave, but the shows will likely become available on Paramount Plus in Canada, which is currently the only international instance of Paramount Plus without original Star Trek content. However, Paramount Plus has not yet commented on these changes in Canada. Do you think that they might be getting ready to release Star Trek on Paramount Plus in Canada? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm positive. Yes. It's a business. It's a business. Yes. So in closing, we'll be back next week with a review of the fifth episode of Strange New World Season 2 entitled Charades. Before we sign off, we would like to remind you to share a link of Age of Discovery with people you know who enjoy Star Trek as well. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a comment over on iTunes for us. It can help us out with attracting attention and new listeners. Until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter and Instagram at Star Trek AOD. We're also on threads with that same moniker. Facebook at Facebook.com, Star Trek AOD, or at our website, Star Trek AOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and other aspects of the show. Also, email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.